1: informative, exciting, big episode of FNO InsureTech with your host, Lee Boyd. Lee. Yeah. Lee, that's that's my job. You're taking my job
2: from well, me. Well, I jumped in. I thought I'd help you.
1: You're a jumper.
2: You're a jumper. And I'm there. with Rob Beller. Thank you very much.
1: I'm your co-host. Mm-hmm. I'm the Rob to your Lee, you might say.
2: Yeah. Hey, Rob, guess what? What? We have a big, big episode today.
1: Really? Tell me about that.
2: It's a big deal. I mean, we get to talk to somebody who has been in the industry of innovation and transformation and has been at some of the biggest name companies out there.
1: Right. You mean biggest name insurance companies?
2: No. Biggest names out there like Apple and eBay and Hewlett-Packard and Citi. Big names.
1: Wow. Wow. So this is somebody who has not been necessarily in insurance. Yeah. But a C-level executive?
2: C-level executive who's been in insurance for a little bit under four years.
1: Courageous move.
2: And she is innovating and doing strategy at this company.
1: That can be no one else but Debbie Brekeen, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at CSAA Insurance Group. Is that who you're talking about?
2: That is exactly who I'm talking about. We are going to get to visit with her about what she's doing at CSAA, about why she went there, and then about her past life and lessons learned and just some great little nuggets of information.
1: Lee and I have been talking that there's some guests that we have on that our normal length is maybe even too long. And then there's some guests that we have on, like Debbie, who one episode can't contain everything there is to explore with her. But we did our best here today and we tried our hardest. And she is uh, not only a, a super interesting, experienced, intelligent person, but also really, really nice and generous.
2: Very nice. Yeah, just a genuine person. Uh, Very kind, it seems like, and um, uh, and a great speaker. I think everybody's in for for a treat here.
1: We're glad you're with us for our journey with Debbie and come along and listen to our episode. With that, without further ado, we will get to our interview with Debbie Brackeen from CSAA. Hey, everybody. We are here with our guest, And I'll go as far as saying a very special guest that we have with us today. It's Debbie Brackeen, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at CSAA Insurance. And we say special guest because Debbie brings a world of experience and knowledge from many different points in the technology universe. And we're going to talk about those today as well as CSAA and and what she's doing there. So let's start by saying welcome, Debbie. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Welcome.
0: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here.
1: And we're excited to have you. We we know CSAA well as they are coincidentally are a customer of ours. So cool. We're, we're thrilled to have you with us. So let's let's jump in and talk first about what it is, what the heck do you do? What the heck is a chief strategy and innovation officer at CSAA?
0: Happy to talk about that. Well, as uh, you said, you know CSA well. For everyone else, we're a personal lines carrier, also known as AAA Insurance. So we're over 100 years old, just like AAA. We sell personal auto and home through our AAA clubs across about half of the U.S., 23 states and D.C. We do about $4 billion in premium every year, and we have about 3,800 employees And uh, being over 100 years old, and like much, in my opinion, of the insurance industry, my role was created, I think, for the first time. We hadn't really had an innovation uh, function or executive prior to my joining, uh, really to try and get ahead of all the disruption that the board and the executive team at the time saw on the horizon, uh, from the sharing economy to autonomous vehicles and everything in between. My job is really to help the company think about how to deal with the impact of disruptive things uh, to our business and to our customers, but also obviously help us navigate them in a positive way, turn them into opportunities, so we can c- continue to have the privilege of serving our our customers uh, for hopefully another hundred years.
1: Sure, and that that must be. Uh, uh, personally very exciting because this is a time of tremendous either disruption or coming disruption, depending how you want to look at it. Is that correct?
0: Absolutely. Well, long before this current pandemic, which is a a form of disruption that I certainly wasn't planning for, and I don't know who, well, actually we could have been planning better for it, but... um, (laughs) You know, I've I've spent, uh, gosh, probably over 15 years of my career at this point, uh, working formally, having the privilege of working formally and officially in innovation. I love technology and disruption, you know, can be considered a very negative thing. Right. But like the, the Chinese character for crisis, you know, it's both threat and opportunity. And uh, I'm a perennial optimist. I'm a glass half full kind of person. So. I see the negative potential of disruption, but I usually get very excited about the you know, kind of more opportunistic uh, portion of disruption.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, disruption sounds like something that you don't want to go through, but it's tremendous opportunities. So it must be really cool to get to be the person that navigates between that world, this this new world, and the kind of very well-established, kind of slow-to-change world of insurance.
0: Absolutely. uh, You know, if you'd asked me five years ago if I saw myself working for an insurance company or asked me 10 years ago if I saw myself working for a bank, I would have laughed out loud. You know, no way. Uh, (laughs) So We'll do it for Uh, you. (laughs) (laughs) But I... You know, I, I grew up in tech, as you guys know, and uh, I love technology. I'm I'm insanely curious, and I'm just interested in so many things. And technology, you know, gives me lots of opportunities to get excited about things like that. But it took me a while to realize, wow, you know, technology changes economics of a lot of value chains and and business models, and that is applicable to almost any industry. And you know, the fact that Insurance in this case, you know, has been around for literally hundreds of years and perhaps hasn't changed as quickly as some other or been disrupted as, uh, you know, early on as some other industries. To me, it's just a playground of opportunity. And I think there's so much potential and I feel extremely lucky every day to do my job because I actually, there's a lot of opportunity and I really, really enjoy it.
1: You must have days where you say, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, well,
0: yeah, I, <laughs> there are a few of those days.
1: My son is involved in a startup that does SMS and his world moves at this lightning pace. And both Lee and I have been in the insurance world. We work exclusively on the claims end, right. but we've, we've been involved for a long time and it moves very slowly. I mean, decision-making can take a few years, not a few days. And that must be something that's tough to get used to or difficult, or you say you're a glass-half-full person. How do you deal with that?
0: Well, I'm a glass-half-full person, and I love a good challenge. So I have plenty of that relative to what you were just describing. Yeah, I think it was Alan Kay or one of those super smart people from MIT who coined the the quote, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Mm. So, you know, I, I do have a lot of empathy for, let's say some of my colleagues who've literally grown up in insurance and, and they, they haven't worked in a different environment. They haven't been exposed to some of the things that I kind of grew up with professionally. Most of my career has been here in Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. and you know, I think if you haven't if you haven't been exposed to something, how would you know to understand it? You know, the first time you saw it. Um, I mean, maybe some people could do that, but you know, yes, I think the having worked at some venture backed startups myself, kind of during the internet boom bust era, startups today. You know, they their design frame. They, first of all, they have the privilege of being able to start with no baggage, no legacy infrastructure. You know, no existing customers. So sort of they can. It's all greenfield, and they can literally start from scratch and so but if you're starting from scratch you're going to design a mobile app you know these mobile phones that we all walk around with are effectively supercomputers in our pockets they're capable of so much we're connected to everything and the cloud enables so many amazing experiences you can pull data from almost anywhere there's so much you can do with data i was just talking with one of my my colleagues uh yesterday about data analytics Uh, i have a labs team that's uh we have a a uh, small number of data scientists that are doing some AI and, and machine learning and uh, we're still early days, uh, but it's getting better all the time. But it's one, one observation that I have being relatively new to insurance is no matter what channel of distribution or what you know mechanism by which we're reaching customers, we tend to think of analytics as very traditional measures. How many leads are you driving? How many quotes are you driving and generating from those leads? You know, how many, um, how many uh, policies are you selling and binding? You know, it's very basic analytics. Uh, if you do that all on a, on a mobile, fully digitally enabled, you know, experience then you not only are monitoring those traditional metrics, but you can also look at clickstream metrics and other mm-hmm. things. And, and, and I'm sure we're looking at on, the mar- on the marketing side at a bunch of stuff that's a little more sophisticated. But in the core business, you know, uh, you know I have a colleague, an ex-colleague from City, who started um, a fintech company that was lending to the underbanked or unbanked, you know, so uh, unsecured loans. And we used to have conversations and I was so fascinated because he would say, you know, on the third of five questions that we ask our customers when they're applying for a loan, if they hover over that answer for 28 seconds or more, it correlates to a better underwriting risk. Wow. You know, that's a that's a very unusual wow. you know, kind yeah. of metric, but that's the kind of stuff that I get really excited about. So I just try to keep an open mind and try to share examples like that and help people see that there's something more possible in our old industry.
2: I love that thought. I'm very interested. First, you know, second, I want to get into your story. But before I do that, I want to ask the question that when CSAA hired you as the chief strategy and innovation officer back in 2016, what was the mission? What were they trying to accomplish with hiring you? (laughs) <laughs> it's a
0: great question because that I, is a
1: great question. You're you you're not a traditional choice.
2: Yeah,
0: that's right. Well, I think you know uh, I just happened to have this conversation with our CEO Tom Troy. Uh, I don't know a few weeks ago we were talking about development, and um, I was s- self-assessing that I've learned a lot. I've learned how to be a little bit dangerous and speak some of the language of insurance, but it's it's very complex industry. It's it's one of the most unusual and different business models I've ever. You know, worked with, but he said, you know, actually, your strength is that you're not an insurance expert, so don't don't get too smart about it. You know, we (laughs) need you to be that outside in, you know, kind of voice. So I, I don't know if I can say exactly what I think uh, the board and the CEO had in mind, but I give them a lot of credit for having the realization that a lot of change was on the horizon in our industry more than. Mm You know, I think it's about two-thirds of our book of business today is personal auto. And there are two very big things, you know, happening and a lot of money going into the sharing economy, ride sharing in particular, and autonomous vehicle development. And I mean, there's almost nothing more disruptive, certainly, than autonomous vehicles where people don't own their cars anymore and you just hail a fleet off of your phone. I mean, a, a car, you know, off mm-hmm. of your phone that comes and magically swoops you up and takes you mm-hmm. to where you, you need to go. You don't need a driver's license. You don't need an insurance policy. And liability is shifted from the personal driver liability, whether they own or lease their own car, to, I guess, product liability in, mm-hmm. in the case of autonomous vehicles. And and so they had the recognition that, two recognitions that were really critical. One is there's a lot of change com- coming And we don't really know how to do innovation. We should probably Mm -hmm. hire somebody who has that expertise. So I give them a lot of credit. I literally fell in love with the company and the culture and the opportunity. And here I am three and a half years later.
1: That's awesome. I'm going to ask you a really big question and hope that you can answer this, you know, um, concisely, but how do you do innovation? You've, you've had this tremendous career. Being involved in innovation, when you got to CSAA, you must have had to build a structure first to work with, or what was that already in place? Tell tell us a little bit about that history.
0: How do you do innovation? Well, I have had the benefit of of doing it, uh, you know, for several years before I joined CSAA. I led uh, HP Corporate Ventures for several years. While I was there, I ran innovation uh, for almost six years at City, and which was sort of my first foray outside of the tech industry. And I, I think there are some best practices. When I started doing innovation at HP, frankly, there the, you know, lean startup didn't exist yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, design thinking was w- w- did exist, but was honestly not yet as widely understood or recognized uh, or popular as it is today. So a lot has changed, but there are some best practices and there, it was mostly coming out of uh, the academia at the time. Uh, So I found some authors and people in the Valley that I really respected and I learned a lot from, but there, yeah, there are some best practices in terms of different functions uh, you know, the innovation methodologies that we now call design thinking and, and lean startup, customer empathy, the notion of a minimally viable product or prototype, all of that. So there, there are some tools and there is a discipline. It's not well understood. I think for some people, it seems like uh, really fun and fluffy and you know, not very serious, but there actually is a discipline and, and methodologies and tools. For the business of innovation, and uh, my, you know, I've been using them for many years, and my team is, is structured around them and adopts them. Uh, there's different functions, and I'm a big fan. I, I learned kind of the hard way that we have under my division currently. We have strategy, which I'll come back to, but one of my things that I was very excited about in taking this role was the what I call the happy marriage of strategy with innovation. There's a lot of innovation departments that are set up separately. In my opinion, you could be set up two separately and then you have a whole different set of challenges. It's not easy to innovate within and alongside the core business, but I personally think it's a more powerful way to operate and you have to be strategically aligned and so the Combination of of strategy with our innovation functions, I think, is a really powerful combination. We have a lab; it's primarily a tech lab comprised of data scientists and blockchain engineers and folks like that. It's small but mighty. Uh, uh-huh. But I think you know you have to stay abreast of emerging technologies. I think it's better if you're you have to engage the startup ecosystem in one way or, or the other in innovation. Um, I personally think it's more effective to be an investor, a corporate investor. So we have a a corporate venture capital function called Avanta. That was one of the first things that I, I was able to secure approval from our board to be able to do. So we're still early days. We've only been investing for about two and a half years. But I think that's one of the most important functions in terms of really keeping your finger on the pulse of what's going on. Outside of your company, where the venture capital is going, what the new business models are, kind of being able to monitor early signals, what's taking root and what isn't mm-hmm. in the marketplace. You know, what what are what are consumers gravitating to? You know, uh, on the experience side, I think those are all really really critical signals. So. You know, I think how you're structured and the functions and expertise you have is a big part of, of innovation. And, you know, but I also think innovation is, it sounds fun and it is fun. I love my job, as I said earlier, but it's also really hard. I don't think people realize actually how hard it is Yeah. because you're, you're, we're not the core business. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not paying the bills. Uh you right. in
1: fact you're doing the opposite <laughs> yeah're I mean, we're,
0: yeah, we're, we're, we're just uh, extra costs exactly so uh, um I I'm like sure to the say
1: finance it, department has like this eye on you
0: uh, oh yeah we, we we can be everybody's favorite target one of the the folks on my team has a phrase that I'll, I've co-opted but I really like it which is you know I, I really view my team's mission and our role is not just it's not just about building an innovation function or department. It's really about building an innovative company that's, you know, really focused on putting the customer first. And then obviously, you know, competitively being aware of what's going on in in terms of our competitors. You know, normally we might just think of our competitors as the other carriers that, that we, you know, compete with, but all those billions of dollars going into uh, venture capital, going into insure tech startups. Those are, you know, those are upstarts chomping at the bit to take take us down, <laughs> yeah. you know, in some That's fashion. Right. And so, you know, we have to keep an eye on that as well.
2: Debbie, I'm very interested. As I said in a second, we're going to get to learn a little bit more about your background. But but you are an outsider who's come into this world of insurance, and you've. You've seen so much. You've seen so much innovation, so much change. Whenever you look at the insurance space, is a lot of stuff happening compared to the rest of the industry. Whenever I think of insured tech, it's a big deal. It's changing the way that we do claims, it's changing the way we write. But it's really all that I know. So as an outsider coming in, is insured tech and innovation within insurance, is it comparable to that with, you know, like that's gone on in the world of computers or banking even? What do you see?
0: Wow, interesting question and a cool question. You know, it's funny when I started getting—I was at City running innovation for almost six years, as I mentioned—and I was lucky to join City and banking around the time of the fintech. Fintech. I remember actually asking somebody at City in our um, City Ventures team is FinTech around and I just didn't know about it or is it really a new thing, you know? Uh Yeah. (laughs) And it turns out it was a relatively new thing. Uh, So I was lucky to join City right as the FinTech boom was taking off. I remember going to, I think what's now, you know, called Money 2020 when it was like 30 people in a not very nice hotel, a few hotel rooms somewhere in San Francisco. And I saw the, the Collison brothers there talking about Stripe which is now a massive, you know, massively sure. valuable unicorn. That was pretty cool time to start at city. And, and because I, I think because I had been at city running innovation when the, I always say the fintech boom sort of spawned the insure tech boom.. Yes. And they, some of recruiters started calling, and that's how I found out about the opportunity that um, I ultimately was lucky to get and, and brought me to CSAA. And I, I remember talking to a friend over dinner who's been in insurance for her, almost her whole career. And, and I was like, insurance, I just don't know. I don't know anything about it. You know, I literally had never, it never occurred to me that I might end up at an insurance company and she, uh, she was wonderful. And she said, you know, I love insurance. And she told me why she loved it and how insurance, and she works for one of, she's worked for several large, you know, global reinsurance companies you know, so she was talking more about, let's say, specialty insurance and stuff, but she, she was talking about how insurance really enables us to enjoy lots of the things in life that we would otherwise right. not be able to do. Yeah. And I was kind of inspired by that, and it was just enough inspiration to get me to go to the interviews and learn more about insurance. The thing that I, I will say is, first of all, I'm I'm old enough now and far enough along in my career, I'm pretty picky I have high intellectual curiosity, so I I need to go someplace where I can learn a lot. I love learning about new industries and new business models. And insurance is actually quite interesting because it's the only business model that I've interacted with or thought about where you don't know your costs before you go to market. You can estimate them, but you don't know them. That's like just bizarre to me, (laughs) Um, being a little bit of a business model nerd. Technology is universal, and technology innovation having grown up in the tech industry in silicon valley you know technology innovation is just always moving it's always on and it's gotten faster and faster and faster and a lot of technologies you know like i think artificial intelligence if you think about that i guess you could call it an emerging technology but it's been around for 50 years you know and it's right. only until it's really only been within the last decade that storage and the availability of data, and data dynamically over the cloud and all, and these mobile devices and all of that has enabled it to, you know, kind of get to its inflection point where, you know, there's no turning back. Mm -hmm. And that I believe will dramatically, it has the ability to change the economics of industries. And I mean, Moore's law, you know, the whole continuing um, increase in kind of the doubling of performance of a microprocessor, right. you know, at half the cost over and over and over again, we might be coming to the end of that. Um, that's a dispute, but, or at least a debate, but I, I think technology has the impact to change any industry in multiple ways, customer experience, you know, the the economics of the value chain, whatever. And so I just, I'm inspired by that. And I think that makes any industry potentially interesting, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And it, it must be cool to get in relatively early as much is going on in the insure tech world today. I have to believe that you see it as, you know, relatively early in its full development. And you, of course, have that perspective because of this background with some fabulous companies that you've been able to work at and help to lead. And we want to talk about that for a few minutes. And the thing that jumped out to me right away was you were at Apple, for a relatively long time, um, at at an early point, that must have been an amazing experience. Can you can you share a little bit about about that?
0: Yeah, for sure. As it so happens, I am a native Californian, but I didn't grow up here. I, we moved around a lot because my dad was an aerospace exec, and I actually think my dad is where I got my. He's very entrepreneurial for his industry at the time, and I. I'm pretty sure that's where I caught the innovation bug. I just didn't know it for a while. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I came back to California to go to to school. And uh, when I was at Stanford, I was able to get a Macintosh through the university discount program at the time. And I literally fell in love with it. And I think I talked about it so incessantly that somebody finally connected with me, me with somebody who worked there. And I ended up working at Apple, started working there before I finished college, actually. Yeah. And that turned into... A 10 year career at Apple, and actually, you know, my launch my career in tech. That's, I just sort of fell into it uh, from that experience. But Apple was an amazing place to grow up professionally. I, I feel so lucky that I kind of fell into that situation. It was a very nonconformist type of culture and company, which kind of appeals to me. You know, I think there were a lot of people doing I'm computer. not going to
1: give you a hard time about that. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're in an insurance company, but please, please go on.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but it was, you know, there were a lot of people there. I think if you happen to have a computer science degree, it would be hard to get hired at Apple when I, at the time that I joined, because it, you know, they would be more inclined to hire somebody who was a self-taught programmer going to the Mm. homebrew club, you know, and IBM was the 900 pound gorilla in the market at the time. And of course we have the famous 1984 commercial kind of making fun of that, which I have been there for, but yeah, Apple was a fantastic place to work. And I still have very, privilege to have very many close friends that I met back in those early days at Apple that I'm still quite close with. And so it was a fantastic culture. I'm trying to think about how to describe it. It was very, if you had, you know, sort of the self-starter type of personality and you saw something that could be better or something new that we could be doing, and you just mentioned to somebody, they would, the answer was always, yeah, you should go do that. That's a great idea. <laughs> and... Uh, it probably, kind of yeah, it probably fueled, um, you know, my interest in innovation, even though we didn't talk about it that way back then. But I always, my personality is one where I would gravitate sort of to the next new thing. Um, I still do to some extent. This is really dating myself. But the last two years that I was at Apple, I went to the Newton division and Newton was a we used to call him a PDA, personal digital mm-hmm. assistant. Um, right. But That chipset that's in the Newton. Palm Pilot. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And there was mm-hmm. the there was the Go computer. There was a whole bunch of stuff going on at the time that was, you know, looking at new kinds of devices and new modalities of interacting with the device, new user interfaces and technologies that supported them. And you know that ARM chipset that was in in the Newton and the gentleman uh, who helped design it with ARM, uh, Mike Culbert who's unfortunately passed away now but you know that is the, the that's the basic chipset that's in all of these smartphones today you know so remarkable that product didn't survive and was not a commercial success but it was one of the best experiences i could have had at that point in my career because it was just it's completely different business model it was a completely different set of partners and ecosystem that we helped create and i learned a ton
1: you proceeded through your career and had some interesting jobs both in tech, and then you made the move to City, which must have been probably the same experience that you were explaining earlier, where you said if somebody would have told you you were going to be working in insurance, you would have laughed. Probably if somebody told you you were going to be working in finance for, or for a big bank, uh, <laughs> uh, you would have laughed. But, but uh, can you talk for a minute about working in fintech? And then I'm really interested in the transition fr- from fintech to insure tech or from finance to insurance more accurately? And did one prepare you for the next?
0: Yeah, great question. Definitely working in uh, the banking industry prepared me to some extent for insurance. I'd say in at least two ways that come to mind immediately. One is just uh, definitely banking was the most heavily regulated industry that I'd ever worked in directly, uh, prior to joining. And interestingly, when I joined, uh, CSAA and started working in insurance, people would say, oh my gosh, you know, the regulatory, it's just, it's, it's such a burden. I was like, well, I don't know. I think this is a little bit less regulated than banking in my experience. Sure. So that was one way in which there was some preparation that city, you know, gave me going into insurance. The other one is, I don't know that this is unique to, to banking or insurance. It's probably, I think it's probably common in many industries, but it wasn't so visible to me, I guess, before I was working there, which is that both at Citi and at CSAA, even to this day, and we're, we're making a difference in turning this around through some of our innovation methodologies and programs, but just this notion that people are very oriented. They, they, they There's some internal marketing if you will and talking about how we put clients first we put the customer first but my observation was that no no we don't you know we're really thinking about our own solving our own problems and our own interests you know making money growing the business and not enough focused on the solving the customers problems and when i joined city it was an interesting time because of the finance i joined after you know pretty soon after the economic Crisis of that time, wow, uh, which seems to pale in comparison to the one we're dealing with right now. But sure, it was very, still very visceral. I joined, I think, in early 2011, uh, and I had been talking with City, you know, since 2010. So it was, you know, a good year or two into the financial crisis, and it was very visceral. I mean, you could just tell, like, it was a big deal for the bank at the time. But you know, just I remember one of the first. Innovations I got to work on at Citi was a new kind of mortgage and savings product, I guess you could call it. And the idea was to link a mortgage to a savings deposit account so that, I'll just do it, pick easy numbers for easy math. If you had a $500,000 mortgage and you had $50,000 in your savings account, you would pay interest for that month on the $500,000 minus the amount up to 10% in your savings account. Mm-hmm. And it's very complex to explain to consumers, but it was a huge value proposition for consumers in that over the life of that, a 30-year mortgage in that kind of scenario, you could say you could pay off your, your mortgage faster and pay less interest on the life of the loan. So it was a really good value prop. And I, you had to go to all these committees to get things approved, even just to test them out at city. And I remember an executive and I don't remember his name, so I can't betray who it was, but you know, he was like, Why would we do that? We're leaving money on the table. And I thought, well, Occupy Wall Street, you know, protests <laughs> were going on literally across the street practically.
1: The 99%, the percent, right? Oh
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and and I like, well, because first of all, it's it's a time when we want to be rebuilding trust with the public. And, you know, banks had lost a lot of trust. Yes. And it's good for the customer, therefore, and, and if we can make some money, but it's not as much as we could if we didn't do it, but, you know, it's good for the customer. Why wouldn't we do that? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. His, his remarks didn't make any sense to me, but, and I, I think, I think there's a notion of that. It's, it's really easy when you're a successful, established, large, you know, longstanding incumbent in any industry, probably you get, you have to always be focusing on optimizing your operations, being more efficient, saving you know saving money where you can so that you can invest in things for the future. And so I think it's easy to get very internally focused and focused on your own problems. And, the, and you start hearing things like, well, that's really hard to do. It's going to take a long time. Our systems aren't architected that way. So it's really easy to get caught up in, in your own set of internal problems and lose sight of what the customer needs. And oh, by the way, the world has changed in the meantime, and maybe you should pay attention to that. Customers want things in a different way. So I think in that way, city, both city and CSAA have been fantastic learning experiences for me. Another observation that I have, which was very different, leaving tech, most of the tech companies that I worked for, <clears throat> not all of them, but most of them were you know, did both hardware and software. And when uh-huh. you're building a computer or a smartphone or uh-huh. something that's a physical product and it's goes off a manufacturing line, it actually has to work when a customer gets it and <laughs> hits, hits the button that yeah. says, turn it on, you right. know? Right. And one thing that has been a really interesting observation for me, starting at City and continuing through to CSAA, is just, you know, we have people who have the same job titles, product manager, You know, and we have IT, you know, it's not really R&D. We're trying to transition more to think more of an R&D mindset than an IT mindset. But just that when you don't manufacture products, you know, when you're in more of a services industry, but you have products, obviously, that you sell, um, I think it's harder to, to really deliver, you know, To think about the holistic customer experience and how the customer thinks, probably not consciously, more subconsciously about what the whole product is, you know, and it's harder to deliver it and meet those customer expectations when you're not actually manufacturing something. Like the bank, we would end up with, in fact, I had this happen to me as a consumer, I have some checking account at wells fargo i signed up for wells fargo when i was on campus at stanford just because it was there on campus i still am a customer today uh-huh. and i have this savings account that i i was gonna get rid of and consolidate with you know into other accounts and this banker literally told me you don't want to you don't want to get out of this account because it has features that are never going to go away and you don't get them if you roll this money into that other account uh-huh and so I I'm like okay I this is like 10 yeah. years ago. I kept this account but it's it's like you know that would never happen in the tech industry. You know if you're building when we were building computers at Apple we were working on the computer that we were the the first like the the first Macintosh 2FX. This is really ancient history but while you're working on that that was one where we said it was going to be wicked fast. You know you're working on that version of the Mac 2FX but shortly after you start building that thing, developing it you're already somebody so another engineering team is figuring out the cost reduced version of that product right um, you know right uh, so you can lower the prices but still have the same functionality and performance and someone a different team is thinking about and how do we be, make the next version you know even more wicked fast
1: right nobody's saying let's stay with 1.0.
0: Exactly, and you're always. And if you don't do that, you can't afford to be in that business because you you can't keep manufacturing every single product you know forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that notion of rolling forward products and you know end of lifing some of them so you can continue to invest in future innovation is very natural, I think, and kind of ingrained in the tech industry. And it's not so much, I think. I don't think banking didn't think that way. I don't think insurance thinks that way. It no. takes a long time to file a new product, you know, and it's just, it's kind of designed for the opposite of speed and innovation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, you have companies like Hippo, as an example, Mm
0: -hmm. who are
1: trying to bring different ideas, appealing to different thought processes on the, on the part of the customer. And, and that's very exciting, but their underlying product is a homeowner's policy.
0: Exactly. On somebody else's paper, in that case, at least initially.
2: Right.
1: Yes, although they're, I think they're working on that. But how much have homeowners' policies changed in the last decades? Not a lot. Right. So, so, I mean, there's many insurance companies that are still on 1.0. I
0: mean, another similarity that I see between banking and insurance, and it's probably related to the regulatory component, is I think it's easy to use, like at the bank – And and maybe it was the time that I was there was just right on the heels of the financial crisis. And, you know, that was a hard time, especially for the head of our mortgage business, because he was getting hauled into Congress every, every so often having to testify on what happened with the, you know, the mortgage lending kind of meltdown. But I think this, this idea that, you know, the regulators will never go for that. They won't let us do that or Mm -hmm. that'll just be hard, you know, from a regulatory, that was a big deal at the bank. Mm -hmm. I think there's, kind of a version of that in at, at in insurance as well i mean and, and i i got to meet the the founder of hippo several years ago i think in 2017 so it's just getting started and i think he talked about his father had been in insurance he never right. also never expected himself to be in insurance but i loved that he pointed out that like who can read you know their what's that document called you know the declarations of, of right. you know deck like, the deck sheet yeah First of all, who reads it unless you're in the insurance industry? And even if, if if you're a well-educated, you know, like smart person and you can understand all that legalese, I mean, who wants to read it and who can understand it anyway? It's it's the worst customer experience. And then, unfortunately, in insurance, when a lot of people learn about what they are and are not covered for is sadly when something goes wrong. right? And they realize that that whatever, the sewage line in the street that broke isn't covered and that's their responsibility, you know, or whatever it is.
1: Correct. I was just talking yesterday with um, somebody from another major carrier and we were talking about earthquake. Um, Sadly, that's when a lot of people are going to realize they don't have earthquake insurance. Exactly. Or they're not covered under their traditional homeowner's policy. So back to this comparison between the two, I I just have one last point or question I want to ask you about that. And then that is... Is it fair for me to ask which is harder, innovating in insurance or innovating in finance, or banking? Is is that a reasonable question?
0: It's definitely a reasonable question. I mean, I really only had the one experience in innovating at City, and and you know my current experience innovating with CSAA on the insurance side, and I'm not sure that it's that it's that different. And I, you know, I I think I mentioned earlier, one of the things when you were asking about like, how do you do innovation? (laughs) I think there's definitely methods and best practices and disciplines associated with innovation, but a lot of it I think is also more about maybe leadership and influence and helping people see and understand that there could be a different and a better way so you know, from that perspective, I think CSAA. I wouldn't say insurance necessarily, but CSAA is a little bit easier. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, you know, it's a smaller company than than City, and so there's maybe fewer people to <laughs> to influence and and work with. But you know, I I don't see. I think I think it's it's kind of, uh, I mean, you know, business is comprised of human beings and human beings don't like change. Um, change can be threatening and, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting mix, I would say to, you know, you have people who know the, I mean, I don't even think when I started at CSA, for example, that I even knew that I didn't appreciate the differences, you know, between the different kinds of insurance, you know, personal, commercial. I mean, there, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex industry. And I'm sure some of my colleagues are like, who the heck is she? And what the heck is she you know, going to tell us about this industry that, that we've been working in for our entire careers? And the truth is there's value in both. You know, there's, it, it's, I think it's complementary. what I don't know about insurance and I'm not afraid to ask stupid questions. And I am a quick learner and I like to learn more about You know, new areas and new industries. So I can add value from that perspective, just asking seemingly stupid questions because I literally don't understand and I need to understand a little bit better to be able to have a meaningful conversation. But sometimes those quote unquote stupid questions would have people saying, Oh, actually, that's a really interesting question. I never thought about that. Maybe it's possible. Uh Yeah, we could think, you know, so I think the leadership and the people component. Is the same in my experience in almost any industry that I've worked in.
1: Yeah, we see a lot of that, and that's what makes today such an exciting time, for people like Lee and myself who've been in the industry for a long time. It was wake up and make the donuts every day for a really long time, the exact (laughs) same way that, that we always did, and that's really changed in the last few years. That wow, we can do it differently. And there's, I think with every passing month, there's a greater acceptance of that. I also just wanted to say to you about that. People don't know what insurance is. 99% of the time when I tell somebody who I don't know, or maybe am meeting or whatever that I work in the insurance industry, they always say, oh, you sell insurance because, (laughs) because that's the only thing that they ever think about. Yeah, you know, the insurance salesperson. But uh, yeah, it's obviously a vast industry.
2: For sure. I do have one more question that I would like to ask. So, and, you know, what are you working on now in the world you're living in of strategy and innovation that might be realized in the next three to five years? What are your long-term goals or what is a long-term project you're working on?
0: One of the frameworks that we use in my team, strategy and innovation, because it kind of spans both strategy, straddles both strategy and innovation, is the, it's an old one, but I think it's a good one. It's the McKinsey three horizons of growth model, Yeah, you know, where horizon one, um, we think about that as, you know, helping our core business in personal lines be better, you know, could be more efficient. Could be faster. Could be a better customer experience. Could be a different way to tackle a a problem. Um, And then Horizon Two is sort of where what adjacencies are we expanding into? And then Horizon Three, which is the more long term, um, you know, maybe five to seven years out. You know, that's the how do we think about what's happening today and where it might land in the future, and how should we start thinking about those things? So in the that long term category. We're working on our autonomous vehicle um, strategy. I think there's a somewhat common perspective or maybe consensus perspective, which is personal liability, so personal auto liability, where we underwrite a human driver driving their own car uh, is gonna shift over to um, product liability for the autonomous vehicle that doesn't have a human driver. And so one of the questions that I walk around repeating all the time is, we can underwrite a human driver driving their own car today. What, is, what would it take for us to underwrite that software driver driving an autonomous vehicle in the future? Mm-hmm. And so we're working on that. It's early days. We have a lot to learn. We're lucky to be in Silicon Valley and close to a lot of companies that are, you know, plowing literally hundreds of billions of dollars into this technology and talking with many of them and hoping to partner with some of them on some proofs of concept and pilots on that front. That's it seems like during this current economic contraction and pandemic, most people are saying, you know, AVs are not going to hit as early as maybe some of those folks thought. I think we have some time, but it's a fun problem and an interesting problem. Um, you know, we're looking at demographic changes in the population and you know, becoming a majority-minority country by 2045, I think. And looking at different, you know, segments, you know, whether it's a Hispanic population, which is just having tremendous growth and it's really the driver of the majority-minority shift that'll happen over the next, you know, 10, 15 years. But the rise of millennials and Gen Zs, you know, they're now the biggest, you know, demographic segments uh, of our population. And I have a Gen Z. My son is 18. And when I started my career, we didn't have the Internet and we didn't have email and everything that is just, you know, now passe, I guess, on the email side. But um, to my kid anyway, um, you know, just thinking about what are we are. We were saying earlier, people don't understand insurance. Um, you know, how did we've done some um, ethnographic research, you know, how do Gen Z's think about insurance? It's really fascinating and interesting. So we're thinking about that.
1: What did you find there? I bet more than we give them credit for.
0: One thing that I don't think it's necessarily unique to Gen Z's, but I think this notion of value and I'm paying what I value for what I'm paying for, for the Gen Z's, you know, I think the the notion of the kind of business model that like Trove was experimenting with, you know, coverage for a single item for right. a small duration of time and this notion you can kind of swipe it on and swipe it off, turn it on and off kind of dynamically, dynamic pricing in general,
2: mm-hmm.
0: even subscription pricing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, the subscription as a business model is impacting a lot of different industries. I know... Is it Toggle? I think farmers launched Toggle and it's like a renter's insurance product and it's a subscription-based thing. Um, Subscription and, and being able to turn it on and off kind of flies in the face of the fundamental business model of pooling of risk, you know, in insurance, at least to my understanding. So, but I think that's how they think about things. And generally people, I think, have struggled. If you haven't had a claim for 10 years and you've been paying for your auto or home insurance and you suddenly do and then your premiums go up. People are like, Hey, you know, I've been paying you for 10 years and <laughs> you, I, yeah. I haven't cost you anything. Yeah. I think that's an opportunity. It's a hard challenge, but it's, it's one that I spent a lot of time noodling on. So, but yeah, I, so I'm really excited about autonomous vehicles. I would love to have one come pick me up and take me yeah. you know, to my office when we get to go back to the office. Yeah, I'm excited about delivery drones and robotic yeah. you know, kind of robotics in general. Uh, we're trying to, I, I'm really excited about our small data science team that we built in our lab and they've, uh, you know, one of the investments the company had made before I joined was uh, to kind of modernize a lot of its core infrastructure platforms. And we kind of got all the data in one place in a big data environment around Hadoop. And we're continuing to build on that, but we really hadn't, you know, pulled a lot of our actuarial models, you know, sometimes looked at only segments of our data mm-hmm. and, you A couple of years ago, we started on a journey of building our first machine learning-based model looking at churn, and it was the first time we pulled together all the data from all of our core systems that we had internally, claims data, service data, et cetera, along with some third-party data, you know, like whether from Axiom or whomever, and just look for correlations in the data about when people churned in the middle of their kind of midterm churn, you know. Not just when they got a renewal license, maybe a renewal notice and their premium may have you know gone up a little or something. It was hard to do because it was the first time we had done it. So, you know, the data, it's, it's always hard to get the data in a state where you can actually do something with it, with a machine learning based model. Yeah, right. But we were now piloting, you know, those models in, across our territory. We're looking at opportunities to apply you know, AI in conjunction with some, some third-party startups around fraud, detecting, doing a better job detecting fraud. We were talking about Cape analytics. Yes. You know, we partnered with Cape really early on a couple of years ago. I love their capability to use, to, you know, purchase satellite and aerial imagery, apply machine learning algorithms to assess roof and surrounding property conditions that saves us money on having to not send out human inspectors, which turned out to be super valuable in this pandemic that we're in right now. Um, similarly, you know, one of our vendors uh, offers photo, you know, based claims processing for auto accidents, and you know that was really while that had been a relatively small percentage of our claims processing before the pandemic, and while claims volume has gone down, I mean, we we had to go 100 percent virtual, sure, you know, with everybody sheltering in place, so. Sure. I love innovation wherever it happens on the spectrum, whether it's in our core business or something kind of very futuristic. I'm waiting for the flying cars, you know, the Jetsons. I remember
1: as a a kid, I thought for sure by the time I was 16 that we'd be driving flying cars. Do you guys have kind of a working target data? I mean, like you said, you're close to Silicon Valley. You must know a lot of companies and people involved in developing autonomous vehicles and autonomous protocols. Is there a target date that you guys see out there when it reaches a tipping point where we're really going to see a lot of it going on practically on the road?
0: Well, I don't know. Tipping point is an interesting phrase to use there. I think that autonomous vehicle, so the short answer is no, I don't know what the year is. I don't think you can wait to start thinking about it because it would be, you know, it's highly uncertain. So that's part of why we're working on it now. To be ready whenever it does happen. And it won't happen in the same way in every location hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've been talking to companies that are using relatively simplistic autonomous vehicle technology in retirement or university, you know, communities where you have defined roads that don't have all the normal traffic, let's say, and it's a more controllable experience. It's a, It's a less difficult mapping problem. Those businesses are out there today, you know, shuttling people around on AV shuttles and stuff. That's really different than a level five autonomous car, you know, driving on the highway with a bunch of other cars that still have human drivers Mm -hmm. and big trucks and everything else. I just attended the Informations AV Summit last week, I think, uh, virtually. And I think the consensus was most of the AV companies are unwilling to give a date, (laughs) you know, they're they're emphasizing the importance of the edge cases of autonomous vehicle sensors and being able to interpret things that maybe a Navy you know, sensor or a car has not seen before. That's the hard part. And it's going to take a while and, and they're committed to not putting anything out there till it's, it's, you know, they can verify it's safety, but there did seem to be a consensus that it'll happen first in long haul trucking, right? which I kind of believe. So there's obviously test vehicles out there today already in, in a number of communities and in some in many in our territories here sure. in California and uh, Arizona, Arizona, et cetera. You know we're working now so we can be ready whenever it does you know reach some form of of tipping point
1: it's It's an incredible question, but like you said, if you have two thirds of your revenue stream tied to auto insurance as it traditionally exists, I'm sure that's a major imperative that you guys are working on. As we bring it to a close, I mean, we didn't—we <laughs> ran out of time, unfortunately. We didn't even get to COVID, and I know that you just wrote about it. I saw your post on LinkedIn. Does COVID make digital go faster? Does it? Does it make innovation go faster? Any any thought on that or insight?
0: Uh, from an innovation perspective, I think that if you had asked anybody in my company, could we take the whole company to a working from home model in the next week? Would that be possible? (laughs) Nobody would have said yes, Uh, and yet we did it. Right? I mean, it went amazingly smoothly, and I'm so proud to work for CSAA and our commitment for employees and their safety, to you know our customers with our premium refunds, to our vendors like our cafeteria workers who were still paying and were purchasing food so they can make at least 500 meals a day for local food banks and for kids who you know get their meals from. We used to get their meals from schools and stuff. I mean, that's just tremendous. So I love that from an innovator's perspective because I know we can do anything. We can there's, we can do more than we ever imagined that is possible. And that's a really important insight not to lose even after we get to whatever the next normal is coming out of COVID.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right. We've seen that in our end too from carriers. That I think they've surprised themselves how much they really can get done quickly if you have to.
0: Exactly. And and so to your question about, you know, digital and and is everything going to go digital post-COVID, I think the answer is generally yes. I mentioned earlier we happen to already have been working with some partners on like Cape analytics on uh, with technology that allows us to do home inspections or with you know, or even inform underwriting decisions without having to send an inspector out to look at a house. So that turned out to be really convenient to have already in place when everything had to go virtual. We were already doing photo claims. You know, I don't see us going back. I think we're only going to continue to push forward and do even more um, virtually, you know, whatever can be, Digital, paperless, virtual, we're gonna push to just keep doing that and do more of it because it's more efficient, you have better, faster customer outcomes, it's you know less costly for us, so we can invest in other new value add things for our customers, et cetera. I think from a consumer's perspective, if if there, you know, I already was a you know Amazon Prime user and DoorDash, you know, food delivery user and stuff like that, if people weren't Um, using some of those services, you know, capabilities before the shelter-in-place orders. Mm -hmm. They certainly, you know, had to start learning how to do it if they, just like if they weren't using home teleconferencing, whatever, they've had to learn, they've been forced to learn how to do it. I think those represent behavioral shifts, you know, kind of where you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You know, it's, I think, in the insurance industry, right? people stopped driving their cars. <laughs> That's why all the insurers have been giving premium refunds. And we did as well, because, you know, frequency is down, less claims. It's the right thing to do to refund people's money. So if people weren't aware before all of this, that the number of miles that they drive is completely correlated to what their premiums are, they certainly are now. So Absolutely. does that, so, you know, some of the questions that we're, and conversations we're having internally, we have a, a usage-based insurance product. It's behavioral, uh, not mileage-based. There are mileage-based solutions out there. Metro Mile is one, and some of the big carriers have them. You know, will should there be a pay-per-mile, you know, kind of model? Does that work economically? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think some of these behavioral things don't kind of turn back and go back to quote-unquote the way it was before. And I think that's. Job number one, you know, certainly for my team in strategy and innovation, is helping make those things visible and kind of drive those conversations and debates internally so that you know, wherever the consumer expectation is going, that we can kind of you know, make sure we're there with solutions that make sense.
1: That's a terrific insight to end with in an episode that we've gotten tremendous insights and information from a leader in our industry today. Congratulations. You're a leader in the insurance industry.
0: Who would have thunk it? Thank you. (laughs) Who would have
1: ever thought? (laughs) You've made it. You're in the big time now.
0: You're there. Oh, dear. Oh, dear.
1: (laughs) And we said to Debbie earlier that there's so much here to talk about that Debbie covers that we're probably going to have to do two episodes. So I'm just telling you right now that episode number two with Debbie Brickin is coming up soon. Everybody stay
2: tuned. (laughs) Awesome. We'll ask her later.
1: <laughs> but we, we have to thank you for episode number one first.
2: Yes, thank you so
1: much. Thanks for being with us, and we really appreciate it. And thank you to your team who really helped put this all together.
0: Well, thank you, Robin Lee. It's been really a lot of fun for me to chat with you guys, and good to know there's a Santa Cruz connection in the house, as they say.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, I'm going to need that address because my wife and I are coming next weekend. So
0: <laughs> Awesome. Well, all right, provided. okay. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you so much.
1: We were just talking before we started the outro just now that uh, I guess like Debbie has so much interesting background to talk about that it's hard to cover it all in one episode.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, if even just looking at her resume, there's so much on there. Uh, mm-hmm. I really feel like we got an all-around picture of what she's doing at CSAA mm-hmm. and kind of her background, but there's still so much more mm-hmm. we want to talk about, and we just barely touched on on the impacts of COVID on her, on the industry. Uh, right. I, I'd love to get her back on and understand a little more of her thoughts and what they're doing with that. Right,
1: we really need a part two there, but to talk about what you know what she's doing at CSAA and the challenge of coming really from outside of insurance altogether and just having that stop that she had in fintech, but being a technology industry person and moving into an industry like this must be not only really challenging, but also really interesting and a lot of fun to... She's obviously a leader and a mentor and an influencer within her company.
2: Yeah, and she said that she has a thirst for knowledge, you know, I, I summarize what she said, but she's always looking to to gain more knowledge. And what's what's better than going into a new industry using some of your past learning, yeah. learning a new industry, than implementing? That's fun. That's exciting. And yeah. it's an industry that is thirsty for innovation, right? Right. It's needing that, so she can bring that skill set. Right. It's uh, it's right up her alley.
1: It's right up her alley. And from what we know of csaa they're doing an amazing job with it and mm-hmm. so we thank debbie so much for being with us and again we thank her team for making it happen we encourage you to look into debbie and to look into innovation it's one of our favorite topics and we can't thank her enough for being with us today and for you to be with us too as you always are and for our Cracker Jack production team located in texas yeah Uh, We thank them, and until next time, we'll say
0: goodbye, everybody.